Hear now the word of the Lord. Likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You may be seated. You may have noticed in the reading of the letters of Paul and Peter that repeatedly they will touch on the character, the nature, the role of husbands and wives. And that is because, in part, that the uh, husband and wife's relationship is the glue that holds the family together, indeed, that we could say the glue that holds society together. And yet, as we come to a passage like this, uh, we ask the question, what is it that Peter is emphasizing here? What is it that he's uh, calling us to consider And when we approach these kinds of verses, some of us may come with a bit of anxiety. Am I going to have to change the way I act and think as a husband or a wife? Now, if you're not currently a husband or a wife, you may think, well, I can check out today. That's not a good idea. You may someday be a husband or a wife. You certainly know husbands and wives, and it may be that God is trying to tell you something here about the nature of what it means to be a husband or a wife. Because I hope by the end you'll see that this is not just a direction to those particular roles in society and in the family, but that it's a direction to all of us who seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is it that Peter's emphasizing here? Well, let me first say that if you're single, and whether that's temporary or lifelong, that doesn't mean that that's a bad thing. A God-honoring way to live out your life might be to be single. 
And yet, as we heard in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the writer, says it is a very good and a blessed thing when two are together as opposed to being alone. And the Lord Himself, of course, in the garden made Adam and Eve because God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So coming to this as single or married, young or old, let's hear what the Lord has to say. Because remember, when we read Peter's words, it's not just his words. It's what the Lord taught him and told him to say. Well, as I mentioned, the general context we missed because we skipped the verses from last week. If you have a Bible open, you can look back to chapter 2 and uh, where we should have been last week, and we saw that uh, there is a general context of submission. Uh, Peter is emphasizing the necessity of submission in all kinds of relationships. He says in verse 13, chapter 2, "...be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution." whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. So, submission in civil governments. And then down in verse 18 and following, servants, be subject to your masters. And so there's a general context that we missed of submission in all kinds of areas of society. And we come then to verse 1 of chapter 3 and we get the word, likewise. In other words, there's a connection between what we're looking at today and what we missed, but you can read last week. So what's the connection here? If a wife is to be submissive or subject, a different translation, what does it mean? And again, in verse 5, she is to be submitting. Let's frame it this way. What is the biblical conduct of a godly wife? What is the biblical conduct of a godly wife? And if you're looking for a list of do's and don'ts, you'll probably not be happy today. We don't have time for that. Let's look at the general principle. What does it not mean to submit? That's helpful. What does it not mean? It does not mean that all women are subject to all men. Notice how Peter phrases it, a wife to her own husband. It's not even that all wives are subject to all husbands. It's a wife to her own husband that he is speaking about here. There are general forms of subjection and submissiveness that we all need to have in society and in culture and in our families and the church. Here, specifically, a wife to her own husband. Secondly, it does not mean that the husband is somehow in place of God. Recognize the authority structures. God made man and woman in His own image. And so, no husband can order, direct, or even ask of his wife to do something that is contrary to the will of God, and therefore she has to do it. He may ask, but she can't. A husband can't say to the wife, go steal something, and she must obey. That's not what submission means. The husband and the wife are both under the authority of God. And so we might ask the question, how far can a wife go in being submissive to her husband? The answer is very plainly, as far as obedience to Christ will allow. She must first and foremost obey her Savior. So being submissive to your husband does not mean that he can order you or ask you anything that is outside the commands of Christ. It does not mean to submit to Uh, every demand. It does not mean giving up independent thought. You may notice that the husband 
is being addressed in verse 7. The wife is being addressed in verse 3. That means that the wives are capable of hearing what Peter is saying. He's addressing them directly. It's not that he's telling husbands what to tell their wives. He is addressing them personally. They're able to think and hear and understand. They don't have lesser intelligence or competence. They are made in the image of God, just as the husband is, and he addresses them directly. Likewise, in the same way. And it also does not mean that Wives have any less value than husbands. This is so important. The Bible indicates all throughout that there is an equality of men and women. And particularly as we look at what it means to be in Christ, the general context of 1 Peter, we see that all in Christ are joined with Christ, are one with Christ, have obedience to Christ as their primary authority, and as it says in verse 7, are heirs together of the grace of life. There is no sense of value or hierarchy as far as personhood. This is primarily a matter of role and responsibility. And so those are the things that it does not mean. What does submission and responsibility mean in this context? Well, the first undergirding principle is this. Peter's not the first one to mention it. This is a creation ordinance. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you will find that God has ordered that the husband was made first, Adam, and from him came Eve. Matthew Henry, the commentator, has a great comment on that passage in Genesis 2. He says, you will note that Adam was formed first and Eve from a rib in his side. She was not taken from his head to rule over him. She was not taken from his feet to be under him, but from his side to be under his arm of protection, love, and care, and to be alongside of him as they pursue the grace of life. This is a creation ordinance. And therefore, because God ordained from the beginning that the relationship of husbands and wives would be this way, Peter is simply restating what Paul and elsewhere in Scripture we find. And because it's a creation ordinance, that means it was also subject to futility when mankind falls into sin. And so therefore, those who are under the authority of submission, who must submit in every area of society because of sin, will naturally kick against that authority structure. And those who are acting in ways that should be submitted to, will naturally, because of sin, do it in ungodly ways. And so the whole action of submission and authority that we find in every structure of society is not done well because of sin. But it doesn't take away from the principle that God ordained from the beginning. So as we approach this text, that's our first principle. And the second one is this. Submission is primarily a matter of authority. And here's the question, who sets up the authority structures? God does. And so as we come to the issue of submission, in this case, wives to husbands, we see a structure that God has established in the family, just like He establishes structures in the church and in the civil government and in every human institution. And we come, therefore, with a sense of humility 
all of us, of wanting to know what God says as we look at authority and submission and how that plays out in the family. You may have noted as you read through the Scriptures that while this deals particularly with husbands and wives, and we find that elsewhere, uh, we noted in chapter 2 that uh, governments have authority and citizens or subjects in the governments are to be in submission and even servants to masters. But elsewhere in Scripture, you will find other things. Children, you are to submit to your parents' authority. And we have rebellion right there in the back of the room. A perfect example. Children are to submit to their parents' authority. We all are subject to governments of human institutions. Elsewhere in Scripture, we find that all Christians are to be subject to God. We have the universe and all of its powers subject to the kingship of Jesus Christ. We have church members subject and submitting to their ruling elders in the church. We have the whole church subject to Christ. And here's the amazing thing. You have Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself, come to earth who must submit to His human parents. And the Son of God being even sent to be incarnate because His heavenly Father so decreed. Submission itself is not a bad thing. It's the ordering of structures and institutions that God has designed. It's a matter simply of wanting to know what God says. And therefore, the first application we have of this principle before we even get to the role of the wife is this. Anytime you see the principle of submission in the Scripture, the primary purpose is to teach us that we are subjects, creatures of a Creator God. And He's the sovereign one. And He rules and He reigns and He decrees and He decides. And all of us then come to the Word, hopefully with humble hearts. Now, as to the detail of how this works out in the individual marriages, you will find great divergence. The principle is the same, but how this particular husband relates to this particular wife is going to be playing out differently in every home. It's the nature of what it means to be individuals and not just cookie-cutter people. And God has made people with different strengths and abilities and desires, and so therefore one of the goals of this whole process of submission is not so much how does my wife submit to me, says the husband, or how does my husband have authority over me, says the wife, but how do we honor Christ in this marriage? What will it look like for us as we talk about this openly, as we discuss it, as we work together as a church to live out these principles in our marriages? As a wife understands increasingly what it means to be submissive to her husband, she's recognizing God-given authority to her husband, and even more so, God's authority over both of them in the marriage. That this is not her husband's idea for her to be submissive, but God's plan and principle for their marriage. And one of the goals of this, of this submissiveness, as it says in this text, is that God may well use a wife's submissiveness to her unbelieving husband as a means whereby God draws that husband to himself. That he will see her as different than other women in the culture and want to know this God that she submits to as her primary authority. 
Wives, of course, if you are married to an unbeliever, know this, that God is using your godliness to bring your husband to himself. Don't despair. God may well use the very way in which you behave to and with your husband to give him the grace of life. You'll also notice that Peter seemingly goes on a side issue to talk about what a godly woman wears, her adornment. It's not a side issue. It's actually an illustration of the principle here. And some read verse 3 and following as a condemnation of uh, braids and jewelry, and if that's the case, when their clothing is condemned as well. It's not whether. It's what is the purpose of such. The passage is not prohibitive but comparative. It's an illustration. The question is this, what is the source of a woman's beauty before the face of God and perhaps even in the eyes of her husband? He's saying it is not these outward things that could be very ostentatious. It's not braided hair or jewelry or clothing. No, her manner of, matter of focus should be the hidden person of her heart. The goal is the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, hopefully the contrast is clear. The inner self is far more important. The inner beauty is far more radiant, far more Christ-like, far more precious than any outward adornment that any woman could ever have. It's not prohibitive. It's comparative. And the point being, this is illustrating then the very principle of a wife's submissiveness to her husband is that she is, by her behavior, attitude, and even the way she adorns herself, seeking to give glory to God in her relationship with her husband. And one of the ways in which a wife gives glory to God is to submit to her husband's authority. Peter reminds us as an example of what he calls the holy women, and he takes one, Abraham's wife, Sarah. And he reminds us that they adorned themselves by cultivating this inward godliness in order to please God, and says that Sarah referred to Abraham as Lord. Now, that's not a common term that wives use with their husbands in our culture and day. If you lived in the Middle Ages, you might say, my Lord, but we don't do that. So take the principle, not the vocabulary. What's the principle here? How a wife addresses her husband, how she speaks to him, how she acts to him, how she treats him is to be in a godly, submissive way from a gentle and quiet spirit that gives honor to the inward beauty that is in her. Why? Because Christ has made her so. And the more godly she acts in her relationship with her husband, her children, society, the more Christ radiates out from that inward beauty. And who gets the glory? Christ does. The questions that women who are wives should be asking themselves as they hear this passage is, how do I reflect the glory of Christ in me, in my relationship particularly with my husband? What do I say to him? How do I treat him? How do I respect him? How do I honor him? How do I take other passages in the Scripture that teach me how to live a Christ-like, godly life in relationship with my husband? And as you grow in your knowledge of the Scriptures and what it means to be a godly wife, 
you'll see that the outward adornment and the things and the trappings of life that often are considered valuable in society are secondary to what the biblical teaching is about a sanctified, godly wife. And that would be my primary instruction then. Search the Scriptures, wives. See what the Scriptures say about living a godly Christian life in general, and then particularly about what it means to be a godly Christian wife, and begin to put that into practice, and you'll find that submission to your husband comes naturally in a godly way. And you should also be asking yourself these questions. When I hear such teaching, is there any sense of rebellion rising up in me? That's natural because of the fall, but it needs to be dealt with. Do I kick against the idea that I am, by God's design, uh, under the authority of my husband in any way? Do I want to be in authority? Do I want to be in every way equal in authority with him? Or am I willing to consider the idea that the Bible teaches a natural submission in the marriage? And if there's rebellion, that needs to be repented of. And if you do go to repentance, even for particular things that you've done or said or thought about your relationship with your husband, know this, Christ readily forgives all of those sins. But now we must turn to what Peter says to the husbands. What is a godly husband? Well, he has to live with his wife in an understanding way. And you might say, if you're a husband, I have tried for 30 years to understand my wife, and I can't. That's not the point. Take it word by word. Live with. It says that you must live with your wife. In other words, dwell together. In other words, be home. That may be too convicting. Are you always out at work, always out doing a project, always out with your friends, always out playing golf, always out and never home? Or worse, are you home but not really there? A lot of wives' elbows just went like that. Live with your wife means to dwell together in a sense of unity that we are one together, not just two people living in the same house. And to do so, as Peter says, in an understanding way. Another translation says, according to knowledge. To know what? To understand what? Well, many, many things, men. Many things. First of all, what God's design for the marriage relationship is. You must understand that. You must understand all of the Scripture teaches about what it means to be married, what it means to be a husband, and particularly what it means for you to be this particular woman's husband. Each man, each woman are different. How is our marriage built? What are her strengths, my strengths, her weaknesses, my weaknesses? So God's plan for marriage, who am I as a husband, and who is my wife? I must understand all these things. And that's a lot of work. We have to know our wife's heart and soul. We have to know what she needs from you. We have to understand that the way God made women and men are different. And what she needs from you is probably not what you need from her. 
You have to understand your wife's gifts and strengths and the way in which God has made her. What are her weaknesses, physical, emotional, and spiritual? What are her strengths, physical, emotional, and spiritual? How does that match perfectly with yours by God's design? How can you help her do what God has called her to do? She is your helper, but you're her helper. How do you make sure that she has what she needs to do her callings in life? A lot of guys are really into tools. If I don't have the right tools, I can't do the job. I stopped at Home Depot on my way here last night. I bought more tools. I'll hide them when I take them home. Does your wife have the tools she needs to do what she is called to do? They may not be physical tools, but does she have your support to do what she's called to do? Does she have your counsel? Does she have your encouragement? Does she have the mechanical devices that she needs to to get to work or to go where she goes and to be when she needs to be? I was at a women's or men's conference uh, years ago, and uh, one speaker particularly told us that if we didn't buy a dishwasher for our wife, we were failing as a husband. Men need to make sure, as they're understanding what it means to be a godly husband for their wife, that they are understanding all these aspects about who she is, who we are, and what God's design is for us in the marriage relationship. And then Peter says, honor her. Treat with respect, dignity, protect her person, support her, delight in her, trust her, have confidence in her. Honor includes giving affirming words, not just in private, but even publicly. And husbands and wives, never demean your spouse publicly. Honor them with your time, your effort, your respect, your love. Provide. And note that Peter uses the term weaker vessel. Now, some people want to know just what Peter means. We'll have to wait for glory to find out exactly what Peter means. But note that it's the exact same word that the Apostle Paul uses when he's describing the parts of the body in 1 Corinthians 12. Some parts of the body are weaker, says Paul. He's using the body as an illustration of the church, but he reminds us that in the body certain parts are weaker, such as the eye, easily harmed, not able to do anything beyond what it's meant to do. And yet we treat those parts with greater honor, and we protect them. We all know that physically, in general, women are weaker physically than men. I don't think that's the limit of what Peter's driving at here. There's a sense in which a wife needs something of a protective nature from her husband physically, emotionally, spiritually. When we looked at the wife's verses there, Peter mentions that there's a a sense in which she might be fearful. How can you as a husband honor and protect your wife because she might be fearful? Husbands should not be filled with criticism, conflict, inconsiderate in their speech or action, not be a brute. You know, guys, the way you talk to your friends, male friends, is not the way to talk to women and particularly your wife. They have a different desire for your communication. Women are definitely more sensitive than men, and that's a good thing. Honor that. Treat them accordingly. Live with understanding. 
for all that God says about wives. The weaker parts are indispensable. Treat her as if she is indispensable. Unless you think this text somehow makes her less than you, we've already touched on that. But again, remember verse 7, you are heirs together of the grace of life. There's an absolute equality of personhood and value between the husband and the wife standing before the face of God. Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. In Christ, we are one. And if you're thinking, husbands, that you can already handle everything that this passage is saying and you've got it all set, ask yourself this, how's your prayer life? Peter says that if you are not thinking and living in these ways, it may well hinder your prayers. Why? Because you'll not be able to come to God in full assurance of your holiness and your life before Him because you're not treating your wife as you should. And it may well hinder your prayers. Again, God has ordained the role of the husband and the wife to be a way in which we sanctify each other to be a way which we model the relationship of Christ and His church before society and to teach us the very nature of what submission means as individuals before our God. What a wonderful privilege a godly marriage is. And husbands, as you think about the way in which you've been treating your wife, that you don't understand her, you don't honor her, there are things that you probably need to repent of. And just as wives need to do that, so do husbands. And it may be to God alone or it may be to each other. But know this, that Jesus Christ forgives every one of those sins. Because His desire for you is that you would grow in your grace and understanding of what this means. And the problem is, as we come to passages like this, we we read them and we start to think about the implications and we realize, I have miserably failed as a husband as a wife. Or perhaps, I don't think I want to get married because I know I can't do these things. I know I'll dishonor God by the way I live. I know that as a husband, I have not lived with my wife in an understanding way. I know that as a wife, I have, I have not really understood what submission to my husband is like. And as I think about it, I know that I don't really want to know. I'm, I'm quite happy with the way things are right now. Maybe that's your thinking. Let's go to one more category quickly, because if you end there, you will never grow in grace. Peter doesn't mention our third category, but it's most important, and it's simply this. We will fail at this passage and every other passage like it unless we understand that it's pointing us to the nature of submission to God, our Creator. Submission in marriage is just a picture of how we all must submit to our God who made us in His image, who decreed that we would be allowed to fall into sin, and who then rescued us in His own Son, Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, if you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ humbly, submissively, on your knees and said, I am a sinner in need of your grace, I am a sinner who needs a Savior, I receive your salvation for me, then you understand the very nature of submission. It requires humility. It requires a giving up of yourself. It requires sacrifice and maybe even suffering. 
The larger context of this passage, if you go back to chapter 2 this afternoon and look at it, you'll see that after it talks about submitting to governments and and servants to masters, it then illustrates that principle by telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about how Christ submitted himself. He submitted himself to his Father to come to earth. He submitted himself to his parents. He humbled himself and became obedient even to death on the cross because he submitted himself to the Jews and their authority and to the Romans. Now, none of that was required of him in the sense that he didn't have all authority and power to overcome it. But it was all required of him to accomplish salvation for his people. And so as Christ has modeled for us the nature of submission, we must first submit ourselves to Christ in order for us to be able to handle this passage. So if you've come to Christ in faith and repentance, then you'll know that it doesn't just say you're forgiven, that the gospel is not just that. It is that, but it's more. It's you're forgiven, and I am making you to be like me. That's who you are. That's who you're meant to be. The purpose of salvation is not just to forgive your sins so you can go to heaven. If that was it alone, you would not be able to be in heaven. The purpose of salvation is to forgive your sins so you can be sanctified and made Christ-like and holy and perfect so you can be in heaven. And that begins now. This process that God calls sanctification begins the moment you have been brought to Christ. Do you remember the Israelites in Egypt? They were under horrible taskmasters. They had to submit themselves to a labor that was difficult, and they were making bricks. And the problems developed, and so the Egyptians decided that they would make them make bricks, but not give them the straw to serve as the binder to the clay to make the bricks. Do you think that God is like an evil Egyptian taskmaster that requires of you to make your marriage like bricks without straw? That he's commanded wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to understand, and he says, but do it without any means or tools or ability or even the materials. That's absurd. The commands of God are only met because the provision of God is there for you. And just as he has said, wives submit to your husbands and husbands understand and honor your wives, so he gives us all that we need that we can work that out in our relationships in our homes. And what's the primary means? The sanctifying grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, opening the word of truth to your eyes and enabling you and encouraging you and equipping you to do the very thing He commands. Our hope is built on nothing less. But that's all we need. We can come to passages like this and we can stumble over it and say, well, I just can't do that. I I can't possibly submit to my husband. He, blank. Or I can't possibly understand my wife. She's, blank. And we get caught up in that detail. Instead of seeing the big picture that submission is a way of life for the Christian, we've submitted ourselves to Christ. We've submitted ourselves to His authority. We've submitted ourselves to His death on the cross in our behalf. Now submit yourself to His sanctifying grace and ask Him to help you. 
Solomon says two are better than one. Maybe you missed it when Rick read it, but he says at the very end, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The bond that you and I need in our Christian marriages is that wife and husband are walking closely with Christ in this threefold bond so that Christ is leading the marriage. Christ is the ultimate authority in the marriage. Christ is the corrective power in the marriage. Christ is the hope in the marriage. And that together, husband and wife, seeking what Christ desires, grow in grace and maturity and faithfulness as they walk with Jesus. That has to be your commitment. Husbands and wives, go home. Pray together. Ask the Lord to help you in these things. Repent of past sins. Seek the Lord's counsel. Seek the help of more godly couples as you see them and know them. But most of all, submit yourself to Christ because He has given you everything you need to walk in a godly marriage. Let's pray for that. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for the gift of marriage. We thank You that it's modeled for us and given to us, that the Scriptures give us all that we need by Your Spirit, that we have You indwelling us and enabling us. Father, help us as we move forward then in marriages that are not often what You desire. Help us, Lord, repent of sin and walk in grace. Lord, counsel us, guide us, lead us. Develop us, we pray that we might be more faithful husbands and wives, Christians before your face. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.